So yeah, we know people who spend time in prison are more likely to have physical and mental health problems. New data is showing that for children, any contact with the criminal justice system means they're more likely to die earlier and have health problems of every kind, even if they never actually go into custody. Is it the system causing the harm or are kids already at risk, also more likely to be targeted by the system? And what would it take to change this trend? These are questions being tackled by Australian researchers in collaboration with a group at Harvard University. Stuart Kinner is head of the Australian arm, the Justice Health Group. And he says the data is showing the same thing over and over again. What we wanted to know is what is the risk of a young person who's had contact with the youth justice system in Queensland dying? And tragically, what we found is that the rate of death in these young people is more than four times as high as it should be. And now that's keeping in mind that most of these kids have never been in youth detention. Most of these kids, in fact, have only ever been charged with an offence and only a minority of them were ever in detention that minority had a risk of death that was more than six times what you see in the general community. But for people who haven't even been in detention, what could be behind this disproportionately high rate of death? The youth justice system is not causing these deaths. It's certainly not helping, unfortunately. But what happens is the youth justice system, among other things, effectively selects vulnerable, at-risk, traumatised children and young people and they spend in Australia an average of eight days in detention if they go there at all. And then they return to the community and often to the very difficult, stressful and traumatising circumstances that they came from. So what we're seeing here is a system that's picking up young people who are at extraordinarily increased risk, who aren't getting the support they need, incarcerating them for eight days, and then unfortunately not doing nearly enough to support them once they return to the community. Right. These are kids who are at baseline at increased risk of poor health for whatever reasons. They've yes. got some sort of intersection with the system, the government. Surely that's an opportunity to intervene if they are at higher need of sort of health services. It is, and it's ironic that we know the factors that lead to people being involved in the criminal justice system are poverty, discrimination, racism, mental health problems, intellectual disability, substance use issues. We know that these things are important drivers of people ending up in that system, whether we're talking about children or adults, and yet we don't do nearly enough to address those issues either while those people are in custody or, really critically, once they're back in the community. But they're still doing the wrong thing. Look, the work that we're doing is not focused on the criminal justice system, and I'm not trying to second-guess the decisions of the criminal justice system. Let's just put, park that for a moment and think, okay, so somebody has been judged as, as being guilty of an offence. They've been sent to prison or to youth detention. If we take that as a given, the question now is, well, what do we do now? Let's do something useful. Let's do something that's good for that young person. Let's do something that's good for the community that they came from and will return to. And that's about investing our resources wisely and in ways that the evidence tells us will work. What do we know then? Like, what does work? What works, firstly, is keeping young people out of youth detention. We know that internationally, many countries around the world have raised their minimum age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. The United Nations has suggested that Australia follows suit. At the moment, unfortunately, it hasn't happened. In most parts of the country, children as young as 10 can be locked up in youth detention. Now, it's not, there's not a lot, but the number should be zero. 
So one of the things that's happened really recently is your group in conjunction with the FXB Centre for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University have put out a big report. And one of the things that you do is you contrast the situation as it is in Australia with things like the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child saying that they don't line up. That's right. So, look, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which nearly every country in the world has ratified, including Australia, basically says that all children retain the right to the highest attainable standard of health. In other words, we want every child in the world to have the best health they can have. A fairly simple concept. Unfortunately, when it comes to youth detention, the UN has issued another document that says these kids get adequate medical care. And so what we've pointed out, that sounds like we're just playing semantics, but where it really pans out in practice is that Australia, like every other country, needs to meet those minimum standards. And by lowering the standard, by lowering the bar for these kids who are the kids most in need of high quality care, what we're seeing is an instance of what medical folks call the inverse care law. In other words, the people most in need of high quality care are least likely to get it. What would change look like in practical terms in Australia? In Australia, firstly, we were talking about youth justice, raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 would be the first thing to do. There are better ways to respond to behavioural issues in young, vulnerable children than to put them in youth detention. Secondly, investing in systems to ensure that children who go to youth detention get the care they need. For example, not excluding children in detention from Medicare, Mm. which is a a staggering omission that we could talk about. But for the vast majority of kids who never go to youth detention, setting aside the criminal justice response, recognising that we're picking up young, vulnerable, traumatised kids, often with complex health and social needs, and seizing that opportunity to try to do something to improve their life circumstances, irrespective of the criminal justice matters that they're involved in. How likely is it that a politician goes, yes, this is the platform that I'm going to campaign on? I mean, it's not without precedent. We all know that there's a the simple road is the tough on crime rhetoric approach, but we also know that it just doesn't work. We know that incarceration is criminogenic, meaning that if you send someone to prison, it makes them more likely to go back. We know that most people released from youth detention and most people released from prison in Australia go back. We spend more than $6 billion a year on prisons and more than $1.3 billion a year on youth detention. Every child we send to youth detention costs over a million dollars a year. It's not money well spent. Okay, if I'm just sitting at home and I'm hearing this and I'm going, well, okay, I'm not a politician, I'm not sending a young person to youth detention? Like, what can I do? Quite a lot. In fact, the general community has a lot of power here. The first thing I'd suggest is to call out any politician that you're interacting with on tough on crime rhetoric. The next time you hear your local MP talk about being tough on young offenders, call them out and say, where's the evidence that that works? Secondly, if you're speaking to your MP, support calls to raise the age. Go to raisetheage.org and support the national and international calls for Australia to follow most of our international counterparts and raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. And then thirdly, just remember that in Australia, about 70,000 people go to prison each year. We know that last financial year, 4,350 children went to youth detention. 
and almost 9,000 kids were under youth justice supervision. That's every year. So you're already, we are all already interacting with people who've been through this system every day. So just remember that people who've been in that system are just members of our community, no different to you or I. Stuart, thank you so much. My pleasure. Professor Stuart Kinner is head of the Justice Health Group at Curtin University and Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Damien Lenane wasn't a child when he was put into prison. He says that's mostly because he was lucky not to get caught, but other aspects of his experience gel with Professor Stuart Kinner's findings. Regardless of age, people go into prison with higher than average need for health care, especially mental health, but they have less access to it inside, making things even worse. And then I went into prison and I had a mandatory appointment with a prison psychologist and I told her the truth. I told her that I, you know, before I got in trouble, I realised I needed to talk to someone and that I'd been making really incredible progress. And I said I really thought it would be beneficial if I could continue that therapy in prison. And she smiled sadly and she said something which has changed my life and it's the reason I'm doing a PhD now. And what she said was, Damien, everyone in prison would benefit from therapy, but there's no funding for that. My job's just to assess whether people are suicidal or dangerous and to write reports for probation and parole. I was assessed as a low to medium risk of reoffending, which I believe is the lowest assessment you can get. And because of that, I was told that uh, not only did I not have to complete any rehabilitation, I wasn't eligible to complete any, even if I wanted to. You have to be assessed as medium high or higher to um, be eligible for rehabilitation. And, you know, there's this feeling amongst the general public that our prisons are rehabilitating people, and that could not be further from the truth. There's no therapy or rehabilitation, but you're surrounded by angry people who uh, also need help and aren't getting it. And, you know, so something I've always thought was really ironic was that um, they didn't give me any therapy in prison, but they put me in a cell with a guy who was in there for manufacturing machine guns. And so now I know where to buy a machine gun. I could get one today if I wanted to. Yeah, we think prisons are there protecting us. Uh, they're not. They're just part of a, like a larger problem. They're basically um, creating more crimes. We're going to give society a six-month break from this person committing crimes, and then when they get out, they're going to be three times more likely to commit one, you know. Inspired by his own experience, Damien is now doing a PhD into this chasm between the need for health services in the prison system and what's actually available. I'm looking at how prisoners have expressed um, frustrations with the lack of healthcare and mental healthcare in prison over time. And something I've um, found which is depressing is that uh, things haven't really changed much in the last 40 years at all, arguably even longer. Like the same things people were complaining about then, they're complaining about now as well. I spent my entire sentence wondering why healthcare in prison was so dreadful. And about three weeks before I got out, I finally wrote a stern worded letter to the Minister for Corrections at the time, uh, was, was David Elliott, and I said, um, amongst other things, I was like, I was on a mental health care plan before I went into prison. It would have been really beneficial, not just for me, but for society at large. And um, I still have the response I got from his office, which was very terse. It just said, um, the mental health care plan is provided through Medicare. Prisoners are not entitled to Medicare access. We've done research on this. It would be cost effective 
part of the reason uh, there's no Medicare access is because, you know, the government doesn't want to foot the bill. But, you know, nobody thinks, you know, more than one step ahead. We know that people who receive both physical and mental health care in prison are less likely to re-offend. And so we know that it would be cost effective for taxpayers if we got Medicare in prisons. But again, nobody thinks that far ahead. And as soon as you raise the issue of improving the rights of people in prison, even if you're doing it for the purpose of reducing crime rather than actually helping prisoners, the public bolt so that politicians don't want to touch it. They know it'd save taxpayers a fortune, but it's just something that gets overlooked. Damien Linane is a PhD candidate at the University of Newcastle and editor of Paper Chained, an art and writing magazine for people in prison. Isn't it great that there are people like Damien being advocates for this? And oh, absolutely. So yeah. successful in life, which is not true of everybody. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.